Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic, generally from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's actually at home in my own flat in London, furiously trying to sort out his Christmas belly. Now, today we are joined by my most favourite senior political editor at Salon. It's Amanda Marcotte in Philadelphia. How's the move been? Great, great. It's not always sunny in Philadelphia. It's been very cloudy, but it is a lovely city. <laughs> you know what you need to do if you're in Philadelphia, I've been told? What? Get yourself a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually, so, I, yeah. Before before uh, before we started recording, folks, uh, I told Royfield that I had bought a bicycle yesterday. It's a bike in city. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's really flat here and um, people just bike everywhere. It, it's it's really great. The amount of people that ride in London is just kind of off the charts now. It's an exponential rise every year with the amount of bikes that you see, and you really notice it at rush hour. So, did you get yourself one of these old old bikes? So, if it gets nicked, um, you're not going to be uh, left out of pocket, or is it some new flashy thing with like 25 gears on it or something? <laughs> It's not a flashy. It's not a flashy bike with twenty five gears. But I, I do admit, I bought a, a somewhat nicer bicycle. I, it's a company called Public that focuses only on making city riding bikes. So it's it's kind of a classic style, just seven gears, but um, nicely made because I, I intend to actually use the thing, and I don't want it to just fall apart <laughs> right away. Well, more more power to you, Mrs. Now, uh, one of the reasons why uh, we've been talking about Amanda's move to Philadelphia and about bicycles is because we're not joined by Alice today. Um, Alice um, has had to rush back home to look after our poorly dad. So it's just Amanda and I today to talk about issues on both sides of the Atlantic. But we wish Alice's pops a speedy recovery. Now, in a week that is seen President Trump address the nation and then two days later say he'll probably almost definitely declare a national emergency, we asked, does Elizabeth Warren have what it takes to win the Democratic Party nomination to become its next president? Okay, we do have some breaking political news. Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren is taking a big step towards challenging President Trump in 2020. CNN's MJ Lee is live in Boston with all of the breaking details. What's happening this morning? Well, Allison, I did not think I would be saying this on the very last day of 2018, but welcome to 2020. Uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is announcing this morning that she is going to form a presidential exploratory committee. This all but confirms what has been widely speculated for a while now, that Senator Warren is going to run for president in 2020. And she is now the first major Democratic candidate to take official uh, action 
uh, and a taking a step closer to a presidential campaign. She made the announcement uh, just a minute ago in an email and a video message that went out to supporters. Here's a little snippet from that video message. No matter where you live in America, and no matter where your family came from in the world, you deserve a path to opportunity. Because no matter what our differences, most of us want the same thing. To be able to work hard, play by the same set of rules, and take care of the people we love. That's the America I'm fighting for. And that's why today I'm launching an exploratory committee for president. Now, are you doing your nails now? Damn, <laughs> <laughs> you are so cool and nonchalant. You're like, I got this punditry down to a T. I can do the cleaning up. I can just like file my nails and just like talk about heavy duty stuff. Girl, you're good. You're good. Now, Amanda, first off, just for the uninitiated, what does a prospective presidential candidate do in Iowa? So, Iowa, it's a small state, very small population. So it's kind of odd, I suppose, to people outside the United States that presidential candidates spend so much time there. But the reason that they do is that it is the first state in a series of primaries. Um, it's actually a caucus state, which is a little different than a primary, but um, for our purposes, it's the same thing. And, and it, it sort of opens the primary season for people trying to get the Democratic nomination or Republican nomination, both party nominations for the president. So if you win Iowa, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win the nomination, but it's a good place to kick off your campaign. If you do well there, it bodes well for the rest of your primary campaign. So, Mm -hmm. so you'll see a lot of presidential candidates going to basically all the presidential candidates going to Iowa and shaking every hand in the state in hopes of winning their caucus there. It, it always seems that to me, looking at recent presidential kind of primary history, that actually New Hampshire, you've got to get your campaign at least up and running. Um, but uh, do you know historically why um, Iowa was chosen as the Democratic Party and the Republican Party's uh, first uh, state that they c- kind of campaign in? Sadly, the reason is just the simple fact that Iowa wants it. Um, it's kind of one of those weird things where Iowa just has always, the state has always positioned itself because the states themselves choose when their primary day is. And so Mm -hmm. Iowa has always been very jealous and guarded its position as number one. And any efforts to change that have been pushed back, um, on hard by the state. They'll make it January 1st in the year if they need to be, because they, they are very determined to be the first state in the country. All right. Cool. Uh, there are up to two dozen potential presidential candidates uh, who are going to be running through Iowa, at least on the Democratic Party side in the next 13 months. Uh, what does that say about the Democratic Party and the run up to 2020? And then which candidates, before we specifically talk about Elizabeth Warren, which candidates uh, represent which wings of the party? You know, I kind of reject the sort of wings of the party mentality, if I'm being honest. Uh, I, I don't you, think... You're getting all Mick, Mick right on me, rejecting the very notion <laughs> of my questions. <laughs> I don't mean to. I don't mean to be, <laughs> be a troublemaker. No, um, no, no. Fin, fin know, his I, boots, go for it. I think there's a lot of pressure to see everything in these sort of like left, center, right terms. And I just don't know that the candidates map as neatly onto that as anyone thinks. For one thing, you know, the entire field of Democratic candidates is very progressive. Um, I don't really see anybody besides maybe Joe Biden that's even close to what you'd consider a centrist throwing their their hat in the ring. And even then, I don't know that he's as centrist as some people say, though really certainly is on economic issues. Um I, 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 I don't like that idea. What I would say is that I think that it's going to be a crowded field this year. And so the candidates are going to have to be doing a lot of work to sort of brand themselves in the voters' eyes. And it'll be interesting to see who adopts what brand and like what their angle is going to be. So um, it was reported today by CBS that Kamala Harris is going to be throwing her hat in the ring on MLK Day. She's going to announce in Oakland. So, you know, all that suggests that what she's going to do to try to stand out from the pack is is really emphasize her identity as a black woman and kind of a civil rights angle. 
Warren is taking kind of an economic angle. I think Sanders is trying that too, but he's, he's also kind of coasting on the fact that he was a second place in the 2016 primary, that sort of thing. Obviously, with the crowded feel, as you said, candidates need to almost kind of come out swinging and really like lay down their marker after they're thrown in their hat. You know, cliches abound there as to <laughs> how they are different from everybody else. Because if you have up to, let's say, 20 candidates running, you know, you'd not be able to divide one candidate from another in terms of kind of policy positions. But let's let's look at Elizabeth Warren. Again, for those maybe in Britain or around the world that aren't as keenly aware as American politics as you and I, who exactly is she? She's a senator from Massachusetts. Um, she's actually not been a political, like a politician for very long. The Senate race was her first race for public office, and she has been a senator for six years. Um, Warren came up in politics because she was a law professor who really, she actually started off as kind of a more conservative Republican and early in her career. But as she got more and more educated on finance law, she realized that the Republicans were on the wrong side of history, economics, everything, switched parties, and really became a champion of improving American laws around consumer protection, especially in the world of banking. That all sounds really, really boring, I know. (laughs) But actually, she's a superstar who has done a tremendous amount of work that's often hard to explain, but very, very important in terms of making the banking system fairer to ordinary Americans. She's kind of a a bit of a... Not only a star of the Democratic Party, but actually she's a bit of a political wonk, isn't she? She's actually done the work in terms of coming up with various kind of policy positions. So in terms of her kind of pugnaciousness uh, politically, she's a bit of a boxer. And then, as I said, she's also a thinker. In the 2016 election, Trump went after her. And uh, she kind of fought back, calling him a loser and a two-bit con man, etc. So she's not afraid in terms of getting into spats with the president. Is that the type of Elizabeth Warren we're going to see in the primaries? Or is she going to be able to push forward her more policy-driven nature? And as you rightly said, she's definitely um, somebody who has those kind of policy chops and stuff. Absolutely the latter. (laughs) I think the reason Elizabeth Warren used the 2016 election to be the boxer against Donald Trump was so Hillary Clinton didn't have to do it. So, you know, that's very often what you see parties do is they kind of assign roles to major political figures. And, you know, getting into public spats with Donald Trump is is always a tricky thing to do. And it was understandable that the party didn't want Hillary Clinton to be involved in that. So, Elizabeth Warren stepped up and did that work as kind of a stand-in for Clinton on that. Now that she's running for office herself, Warren shows every indication of not being interested at all in trying to make this a like pissing match with Donald Trump. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so she had her rollout in Iowa, this big campaign event that had crowd numbers that actually genuinely surprised political reporters on the ground. And I do believe she didn't mention him by name once in her speech. Um, she's focusing her campaign on her biography. She's focusing her campaign on her wonkery. She's really trying to kind of position herself, not as somebody who fights Donald Trump, but somebody who fights for the American people. I know that all sounds kind of cliched and, and silly, but I do think she's actually a very effective messenger for that kind of message. Okay, so let's look at her biography. Give us uh, just two or three lines on this whole DNA ancestry malarkey. Why did Trump go after her, call her Pocahontas? Uh, what did she do in, in return, etc.? Let's just quickly deal with that before we, we move on. So Warren um, has an ancestor who was believed by the community to be Native American, her family lore is that the, her grandmother was actually forbidden from marrying her grandfather because of it, but they did it anyway. Because of this, the Republican Party has long pushed this false notion that Warren identified as a Native American to get some kind of affirmative action benefits in her career, which is flat out false. The reason they do that is to imply that people of color have such great advantages that white people will actually pretend to be people of color in order to get them, which is bonkers. She 
took a DNA test in an effort to sort of stop Trump from calling her a fake Indian, which is what he's doing with that racial slur. Mm-hmm. And found that, in fact, as her family said, she had Native American ancestry. Unfortunately, it's now turned into kind of a wedge issue on the left as some people took offense at her doing that and and took her taking the DNA test as an effort to sort of say she's Native American when she's not. Kind of a very frustrating thing because I feel like there's not much that can be done here. It's a if she had ignored it, she would have been kind of behind the eight ball, but doing what she did also didn't really work to make it go away and it's a real open question of whether there is such a thing as being able to make these kinds of things go away. So there is that. I have yeah, more do- on her bio if you're interested, because she's an oh. interesting person on that. No, 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 no. Go, go. Yeah, the floor is yours today. What she wants to highlight is not her native ancestry on the the campaign trail. What she wants to highlight is the fact that she grew up in Oklahoma in a family that was put at one point in a, a place of real dire poverty and almost lost their house which is kind of how she sort of got on the road of really wanting to make, you know, the American economy more fair to working class people and and working people generally. So you'll hear a lot about Elizabeth Warren, about the fact that she's from Oklahoma, the fact that she lived in dire straits as a kid and that she kind of had to like fight her way for everything she's ever had. She's really, really, really hoping that that becomes more important than this whole Native American thing. Tonight, calling his bluff after relentless taunts by President Trump over Senator Elizabeth Warren's claims of Native American ancestry. They call her Pocahontas. Pocahontas, Pocahontas. Warren is now answering her campaign, releasing a DNA analysis, stating there is strong evidence the senator had a Native American in her family going back six to ten generations. Today, President Trump was dismissive. Who cares? Who cares? And asked if he sees it as a sign Warren is serious about challenging him in 2020. I hope she's running for president because I think she'd be very easy. Warren's move comes after the president posed a hypothetical scenario where he mused about squaring off with Warren in a debate, saying he'd ask her to prove her bloodline. I will give you a million dollars to your favorite charity, paid for by Trump, if you take the test and it shows you're an Indian, you know. But this morning, denying he's on the hook for any donation. I didn't say that. I didn't. You better read it again. And later today, while in Georgia, Mr. Trump clarifying there are some conditions. I'll only do it if I can test her personally. Okay, that will not be something I enjoy doing. And when the president was pressed on whether he owes Warren an apology for stereotyping her as Pocahontas. She owes the country an apology. Late tonight, Warren firing back, tweeting President Trump is attacking her because he's scared as she looks ahead to her next political chapter. I must admit, when I kind of looked at her bio, I was somewhat surprised about uh, the fact that she grew up in Oklahoma. To me... Bear in mind that I am um, some kind of bi-coastal, international, uh, liberal elitist and the things that I do and the way that I lead my life. But to me, she almost is the embodiment of a liberal elitist. So I was somewhat surprised that she didn't, well, she wasn't brought up in New England or in New York or something. Well, you probably are too British to hear her uh, Midwestern accent, but I hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely am. I absolutely am. Um, just finishing up on, and I think you're right to say there's more to a background than the whole uh, Native American thing. But in my role as a podcast host, you know, sometimes you have to try and swing a bat for the other side. Their uh, takeaway from those DNA ancestry results would be that at best she's 164th Native American and at worst it's one part in uh, 1024. And for her to claim that is seen as somewhat comes somewhat kind of disingenuous because she hasn't exactly walked that line politically, has she? She's not been an advocate for Native American rights or that's actually not she, true at all. I okay, mean, okay, school me, sister, school I, me, tell I, me. First of all, uh, there's a couple of things that I think are confusing here that are just wrong. I don't think there's any ev- any real reason to say that Warren has presented herself as Native American, especially in politics. Um, Mm -hmm. she's obviously a white woman in the video that she rolled out the DNA results with, she was very clear that this is true. She identifies as a white woman. She's 
does not tell people she's Native American. <laughs> Uh, mm-hmm. Second of all, um, she actually does have a history of of helping Native American tribes. She's done a lot of events with Native American tribes. She's done a lot of advocacy for them. I don't know all the specifics, but there are plenty of articles out there that anybody who wants to hit on Google can read and find that she's um, worked closely with Native groups in the past to sort of advance their agenda, their rights, their issues. And I think that that is what is kind of the saddest thing in all of this is that there's a lot of gotcha over DNA and identity. But what's getting lost in this entire discussion is that Native Americans in the United States, the tribes are still suffering from a lot of poverty. They're suffering from a lot of unemployment. They're suffering from a lot of isolation. And that is the real issue facing, I think, a lot of Native American people in this country. And no one wants to talk about the boring old real issues (laughs) they want to you know want to play these kind of like soap opera games and i don't know who that helps outside of the republican party Mm. but i thought the native americans had it all good now everything was sorted because they (laughs) own own a little bit of land they've got they got their casinos on they're all good (laughs) i mean there's there's still problems but anyway the one thing which many people say about elizabeth warren is that she has a likability problem. And of course, that is one of the things which was Hillary Clinton's downfall. Now, is his likability problem real or is it just misogynistic code? Just misogynistic code. People like Elizabeth Warren. It actually shows exactly how much that's just code for female because Warren and Clinton are very different people. Um, Mm -hmm. As you noted, Warren's pugnacious. She's very blunt. She's very direct. Whereas Hillary Clinton has always had like more of a a kind of polite grandmotherly demeanor, right? And I Mm -hmm. think that to sort of just treat them as the same person is sexist in the extreme. And, And particularly just because they're both a little bit older, it's ageist as well. The fact of the matter is people have always liked Elizabeth Warren. One of the reasons she became such a star with such a short political career is that people like her. I remember a few years ago when she was campaigning the first time, this video of her answering a question about why she believes the rich need to pay more in taxes like went viral all over the internet because people just thought it was so cool. I, after she was shut down by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in Congress um, last year when she was trying to speak out about Attorney General, Jeff, well, then Senator Jeff Sessions, who was nominated for Attorney General, about his history of racism. She was silenced by Mitch McConnell, and people got tattoos <laughs> celebrating Elizabeth Warren's courage. I, I, I think that it's kind of hard for me to believe that somebody's unlikable when people are getting tattoos on their body for you. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you've mentioned her age, and we've briefly, you know, you said that some of the brickbats thrown at her are sexist and then also ageist. But at the age of 69, can she offer the fresh face appeal that some people believe the Dems need to take on Trump in 2020? Um, maybe not, but I would point out that Bernie Sanders is older than she is, and somehow that doesn't seem to be a concern around him. But maybe that concern around Sanders was was less of one last presidential cycle because there are only two candidates. I know there was three. There's uh, was it Martin O'Malley, but let's let's count him out. There were only really two, and it was you know him up against Clinton. But then if you have let's say twenty eighteen, you know twenty four people running, and there's nothing that points to change. Uh, and a turning over a fresh leaf than uh, a young, fresh Beto O'Rourke or a Kamala Harris, surely. Yeah, I don't think that that's unfair. It is kind of hilarious that only in politics is is somebody over 50 years old considered young. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's interesting. I I think I would definitely, in a crowded field, not hold it against anybody for, for wanting that in their candidate and making their decision based on that. My hope is with a lot of people running that this is not going to be one of those ugly campaigns that start turning into cults of personality around preferred candidates that instead 
people kind of look at the wide field and say that they have a lot of good choices. And, and just because they pick one candidate over the other doesn't mean the other is unqualified or bad person or bad candidate. Okay, so we've kind of dealt with her bio a little and then her running the politics of her running. But what exactly are her policy positions? Where does she stand on, let's say, student debt, climate change, universal health care? And is she maybe politically a little bit too close to Bernie in terms of separating them as candidates? I don't think I don't think having kind of left leaning Sanders style policy ideas is a detrimental to a candidate at all. I see no evidence of that, despite all the hand wringing you get from certain centrist pundits. What you saw in the 2018 you election. You're referring to me there. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you, as a cheap shot marker, I die, that, that wasn't lost on me. <laughs> I'm being honest, though. I, I, I don't think you, you think that. I, I, I wasn't trying to say that. I was just saying, <laughs> answering your question. <laughs> I will, I, I will say right. that there was a lot of evidence coming out of the 2018 election that whether a candidate was more moderate on economic issues or whether they were more left-leaning on economic issues didn't matter at all <laughs> in terms of, how, of their vote share. It didn't change anything. The people that vote for Democrats want people to lean to the left, and and it seems like they kind of just don't care how much. Mm. All right, so student debt, what's her position? I don't know specifically, but I imagine like most Democrats, she wants to embrace some kind of government fix to reduce the amount of student debt that people are holding. Uh, Climate change, uh, does she believe it's an imminent threat? We've got it. Yeah, go on. 100% of the Democrats believe that we need to do more to stop climate change. All right, good, because I must admit, um, us people from outside of the country just think Americans are bonkers for (laughs) for even a a significant proportion of you not believing that this thing is so obviously real. Uh, Universal health care, I presume she believes? Yes, I don't know the specifics, but I do know that um, all Democrats want universal health care. The question is whether they want a Medicare for all program. They want a Medicare buy-in program. Or, um, mm-hmm. And that's basically the diversity on that side right there, whether they want a single payer program like Canada has, or whether they want people to be able to buy government insurance programs or buy private insurance programs if they choose. All right. Uh, where she, and we have kind of touched on this before, but definitely where she does kind of like break with, old-fashioned centrist or moderate democratic uh, kind of party policy is that definitely when it comes to her fundraising as well as her politics, she's not so friendly with the big banks and stuff and corporations. Do you think because of her position around those institutions, this potential will put a ceiling on a potential support that she, command, that she can command or could command in the wider electorate. So I'm not talking about uh, the Democratic primaries now. Let's say that she aces those and she becomes a nominee, but uh, then going out and presenting herself as uh, the potential next American president to the wider electorate. I don't, I don't, I think any Democrat who's going to run needs to write off getting Wall Street support. I think in a lot of ways it can hurt you as much as help you in this day and age because it's going to get out that you're being supported by Wall Street and that's going to turn some people against you. I, I think Beto O'Rourke's like campaign in Texas shows that it can be a benefit to sort of to hold out that you're not owned by the banks. And, and the one other thing I want to say on Elizabeth Warren is unlike kind of other more stand, bog standard democratic issues like climate change, healthcare, things like that, she's a real standout on the issue of banking. She's mm-hmm. done more than almost anybody else to hold the banks accountable, to stop their abuses of the American public. And she understands the issue, I think, better than a lot of people do because she recognizes how much banking um, exploitation happens on the consumer level um, and, and doesn't just think about like wall street, but also thinks about how your like local Wells Fargo branch is contributing to the problem. But her kind of silver bullet in all of this 
is kind of what you said, but it, in crystallizing it, it is the fact that when it comes down to it, she is shit hot and on it when it comes to talking about income inequality, isn't it? If we just put that to one side just for now, do you think that the Democratic Party candidates will talk sufficiently about foreign affairs? I'm, I'm always kind of like quite taken with um, listening to Democratic politicians talk about the issues that America faces, the very obvious, very serious issues. But there isn't much of a sense of America's position kind of in the world, as opposed to a reflexive one against Trump saying that, oh, we shouldn't have ripped up the uh, the deal with, with Iran and whatever. Does she have many views actually about world affairs, America's position as an active member of the world community? She does. But I think that the main reason that you don't really hear candidates talk about that is there's just an unbelievable amount of like internal polling and external polling data that shows that voters don't care about it. So they're going to all want to try to talk about anything else because they, they know that foreign policy puts voters to sleep in the United States, whether it should is an entirely different debate, but the fact of the matter is it does. All right. And as we're starting now to get candidates, as we said before, throw their hats into the ring, How energised is the Democratic Party for the upcoming presidential fight? How is the party looking and feeling at the moment? Um, Who knows? I mean, I think it's a really interesting open question right now about like what it's going to to play out as, because I think a lot of the people that supported Bernie Sanders in 2016 kind of see it as a Sanders versus the Democrats. Well, especially like the hardcore Sanders supporters. See, it is like Sanders versus all the other Democrats that they're going to roll up in one Hillary Clinton-sized ball, right? (laughs) But I don't Mm -hmm. think that that's actually going to be the case at all. I don't think it's going to be Sanders versus everyone else. I think it's going to be a huge and interesting field, and he's just going to be one of many faces. Um, And I hope that it's a good thing. I hope that people are going into this crowded field of candidates and really taking the time to like listen to them speak, talk about policy, watch the debates and not just sort of turn into a bunch of rabid fanatical like stands for one candidate or the other and trying to destroy anybody who stands for another candidate. Mm. Okay. So let's paint a scenario. It's uh, in Iowa. She comes third let's say she gets, uh, let's say, 15% of the vote. There's going to be so many people running that uh, if you come third, it's it's going to be a pretty small uh, percentage of the vote. But you can still say I'm still in the race Mm -hmm. if the winner only gets, let's say, like 22% or something or another, right? So she gets 15%. She goes to New Hampshire and she gets uh, 17% of the vote. Nevertheless, do you think she will persist in a run to try and become <laughs> um, I think she's the Democratic parties? Go I on. think barring um, some kind of other miracle, I think she gets New Hampshire. Like right now, the way the field's shaping up, I think she wins New Hampshire. I think she could win Iowa. I think she's got a better shot than people think. Um, she was in Iowa but, but it, and she turned out a crowd of 3000 people in a town that that's like the population of it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, though, and you look at Iowa results of that, those caucuses that happen in Iowa. Quite often, the winner does not go on to take uh, the nomination. They do on the Democratic side, not the Republican side. You know what? Thank you for pointing that out. This is the reason why we have you on the show, uh, Miss Marcotte, because you actually uh, got into the weeds of this. And on that note, I think we should move on to politics a little bit closer to me right now. Politics over here in Britain, where we look at the rising level of public vitriol towards our politicians. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What are the limits of political discourse? I do object to being called a Nazi, actually. Protest and campaigning are an absolute bedrock of any democracy. And the right to stand noisily and sometimes irritatingly outside the House of Commons, making your point of view known to politicians and lawmakers as they walk in and out, must be a fundamental of British democracy. But this week, the Metropolitan Police have been forced to agree to step up the security around the parliamentary estate after a number of MPs and other figures found themselves being harassed and abused as they walked to and from the Houses of Parliament. It should be stressed that this is not run-of-the-mill campaigning or agitation. This is organised harassment and intimidation of Remain-minded and left-wing politicians by people on the extreme edges of the pro-Brexit community, a clear attempt to intimidate politicians whose views they don't share. This is almost the Twitterfication of politics going off of social media and into real life, and it's clearly extremely unpleasant and frightening for anyone at the receiving end. With Facebook deleting the pages of prominent members of the Yellow Jacket Vest protesters, is it time for us all in the UK to take a chill pill, take a step back and realise that civility sorry, and decorum is at the heart of any political debate? So I was reading up on the Yellow Vest people and I have so many questions. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that it seems to be that a lot of the debate is focused around, like you said, decorum and, and civility. And my Mm -hmm. first question to you is like, is that even the main issue here? I mean, isn't the indecorous nature of the yellow vest people kind of flowing from their ideology and their views on certain issues? Absolutely. And I must admit, the the one thing which really surprised me is that these people who are donning the yellow vests are anti-European to their core. And the fact that they're taking this symbol from French protesters, for me, feels very ironic. Though (laughs) what they do share in common with those French protesters is they are right of centre and they want to tear down the economic system economic and political system which has been the norm for the last 70 years so they have that absolutely in common though the the scary thing is for us brits is that we've always known that these people were there but now they're out in plain sight that's the thing and now they have a uniform um which isn't overtly militaristic as it was from the days of the fascists in the 1930s under Oswald Mosley, or it isn't identified as thuggish, i.e. skinheads in the the 1970s, that this benign bit of apparel now as being co-opted kind of of by them. So it's the fact, really, that these people are are out in in kind of plain sight. But seeing men, because they're always men, and they're always white men, and there are always middle-aged white men as well, screaming at people in the street, 
as come as as a massive shock, but they've been emboldened by by social media. Would you say the yellow vests are the British equivalent of the red MAGA hats? No, no. Make America Great Again Brigade is much bigger in America, and though I thoroughly disagree with those people that that wear those MAGA hats, there are going to be people. There are going to be grandmothers in Iowa or in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who wouldn't scream at somebody in the street. They wouldn't have the kind of visceral dislike of the other. They'll see themselves as American and maybe a true American in a very soft way, but they'll be, but they'll be civil and welcoming to a degree to people who are other, not this lot. This lot are a very small fringe at least in Britain, can't speak for France. In France, it seems like it's a much bigger movement. But in Britain, these are the equivalent of Breitbart trolls who have been emboldened by what's happened in France, have been emboldened by Brexit. These people are far-right extremists, whereas, again, in America, those MAGA hat-wearing people goes from, I would say, unthinking right-of-centre moderates who are swept up with some of Trump's rhetoric, but actually aren't venal racists all the way through to venal racists and stuff. But there's a lot of people um, on that spectrum. You know, I, I see a lot of the like freaking out about the incivility and the screaming and the threats. You know, I'm not trying to downplay that at all. On the contrary, mm-hmm. I, it seems though that just like you said, there's this sense that you said that there was a sense that they existed, but that they were small in number. It's shocking to people to see them out in the streets. Wouldn't that actually be the point, though, of them doing what they're doing? They feel invisible, and this is a way to be very visible and to say, hey, we're here. And and this is the the phenomenon that's happening everywhere in, in the Western world. It's primarily social media, and it, it's not by accident that the one guy whose name escapes me now, and I don't want to give him the oxygen of publicity by him remembering his name, but I do generally forget it, that he everything that he does, he's, he's Facebook living it. So when you see those uh, clips of him um, accosting Anna Subri, you know, it says you are on Facebook, you are on the internet. And... What has happened in in British uh, society is that people who've been fed a constant diet of erroneous headlines about what the European Union has done to Britain for the last 30, 40 years from the Daily Mail and the Daily Express and the Sun now have their own platform to regurgitate that on social media, connect with other people, and they're self-radicalising themselves. So far-right extremists have always been there in British politics, but they've always been a fringe. And because of our media, and then now social media, new, new technology, they've kind of come to the fore. But I think we've always prided ourselves in Britain by having... Um, a largely consensual political um, culture, even when things got quite fractious under Thatcher, and yes, there were the poll tax riots, but those were almost um, the exception. All the way through her tenure, um, things didn't get to this stage whereby an MP can be literally almost barred from walking into Parliament. Anna Subri did get in, but it was literally, it came to a point where she's been jostled and then being called a Nazi while she was given an interview. This is unparalleled now. I think one of the things from out for outsiders that is making the situation confusing is that, as you said, the yellow vest guys were calling her a Nazi. And yet it seems that when it comes to ideology, they would be actually closer to the Nazi point of view than she is. Am, am I wrong in, uh, in kind well, of reading that, that's, that no, situation no, no, no. that way? You're absolutely right. And again, you don't have to be a left of center observer to come up with that as a, an ironic chart, which is thrown at her. Um, Anna Subri herself, who is a, a conservative politician, she's a moderate conservative. She said, these people are fascists. These are the Nazis. But I suppose throwing 
that sobriquet at people, even when you are a Nazi, lessens its true meaning. Because it's just somebody who you don't like. You say, you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi, when actually, no, 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 no. You are the people who are far right. The guy on another clip, I think it was the day before, walked up to a policeman and the policeman said something to him. And he says, what the fuck are you talking about? You're not even British. If he was white, must have had an accent which wasn't British, but I presume he was a policeman of colour, and he was saying that you are not even British. Now, only a fascist, a racist, would say something like that. But I think it's a way of taking, really, the the meaning and the venom out of the phrase Nazi, and that's the reason why they, why they hurl it, with, with no sense of irony. You say that this is a fringe movement, and I, I think a lot of us on both sides of the pond um, have long thought that fascists were like a fringe movement. For instance, you go to YouTube and you, you kind of look at the view numbers on fascist accounts and in white supremacist accounts and they're through the roof. These people have a huge online followings, a lot of YouTube views, a lot of Twitter followers. And my question to you is, were they always there or are we seeing people getting converted to this far-right ideology? Now, I might be wrong on the figures here, but on the fundamental substance, I don't think I am wrong. When people have done studies on far-right activity, there's a lot of teenage boys involved who are even under voting age. I forget the name of the study, but when they stripped it all the way back, there is a proportion of trolls online. Just take the bots out of it for now. And and the, the Russian GRU yeah. kind of like disinformation uh, <laughs> campaigns. So there is an element of that. Put that to one side. Then there are teenage boys who variously believe bits and pieces, don't believe bits and pieces, are having a laugh, don't care, etc., etc. And let's say there's teenage boys, then it goes through to young men. And then there is the echo chamber effect. And so there are a lot of people who do believe this shit, who are watching the same old shit and going through to site after site. That's not to say that we shouldn't be that we should be complacent. But if you look at the political outcomes of this in Britain, even with a party like UKIP, which I'm not saying that they're a fascist party, they're not. But only an idiot would say that at the fringes of UKIP, there aren't some people who are now and out racists. And it is a convenient umbrella for people who are out and out nationalists and actual fascists to call themselves members of UKIP. You know, UKIP fundamentally is not a fascist party, but it can be an umbrella for, for some. Even with a party like UKIP, which is the easiest manifestation of people who hold those reprehensible views, UKIP electorally is very weak in the UK. Again, we shouldn't be complacent about it, Amanda, but I think we need to be careful that we don't also overstate their political weight by looking at figures online of views of videos. And I guess then my last question is, because I, I do agree that like, while they may be more numerous than we thought in the past, they're still not like a majority or a huge minority, right? I, I think that they're mm-hmm. still somewhat small, but I, they're influential. And I, I guess my question to you is, how do you think that this is going to affect Brexit? Is it going to, I mean, could there be a backlash effect and, and maybe increase support for having another vote or at least negotiating Brexit in a a way that's softer? (laughs) We had in the run-up to the 2016 referendum vote, there was an MP, Joe Cox, young female MP, I think she's in her mid-30s, MP for Batley. She was shot dead by a, a guy who was a nutter, but he was shouting and screaming far right slogans as he killed her. One of the scary things about what some bits of the right-wing media are saying about if there is a second referendum and then Brexit is stopped is there will be consequences and we will have to live with them. 
you know, there's this veiled threat of civil disturbance. We're not talking about just shouting at MPs in the street, that there will be full-on riots. Again, we've just got to be careful that it isn't the tail wagging the dog. Will this stop Brexit? Will it affect Brexit? If you are an editor of a tabloid newspaper, specifically it's newspaper headline writers have to take a large dollop of responsibility for all those headlines they've been writing for for years about things like Up Yours Delors, which is a famous Sun newspaper headline. Jacques Delors was um, the EU commissioner in chief in the 90s. It's a great headline, Up Yours Delors. Up yours is like giving the middle finger. All these headlines of the Daily Express would write saying that the EU wants migrants to take our jobs. This is fed a steady diet of misinformation and hate mongering. And now we're reaping the results of that. Weird fucking times, Amanda. <laughs> I think everywhere. <laughs> we're just living, we're living in the wrong timeline, man. <laughs> no you you can't say that we're living in the right one and what this has all done is made us to realize that we shouldn't be complacent you can be a liberal but it doesn't mean that you're woolly and that uh you don't have a backbone that actually we need to fight for our, our liberalism and we can be progressive we can be moderate we can be a whole load of things and stuff but it's forcing us not to be complacent. That, that is the thing about 2016, 17, 18, 19, and whatever, and then hopefully 2020. We cannot be complacent. We need to stand up and be counted. And uh, this is the right time. And after my let's uh, rally to the barricades uh, little rant right at the end of uh, my answer to Amanda's question, it's time for our takeaways of the last seven days. Right, it's the end of a hard day. And we get reflective. We, we don't want to talk about Brexit or Trump or even talk about Elizabeth Warren's chances of being the next president of the United States. We're just going to talk about things which universally all of humanity can put its arms around and hug. Amanda, tell me one of your two takeaways or tell me even both of your takeaways of the last seven days. So these days um, I kick off my shoes at the end of the day and stop thinking about politics about Mm -hmm. Trump and Russia and instead think about Ronald Reagan in Russia. (laughs) Uh, I've been playing a lot of this game called Twilight Struggle. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, It's a fun game. It's a two-person game. It's a board game, but there's now a a computerized version that you can get on your iPad. It is a two-person game in which one player plays the U.S. and one person plays the USSR. And it's a war game with cards. It's so hard. And you basically just sort of reenact the Cold War, but in a, a kind of randomized gameplay type style. And the goal of the game is to have more power and influence by the early night. You start in the 40s and mm-hmm. you play through the 90s. And if you make it to 1992, having more power and influence in the other country, you win. It's a lot of fun. You spend a lot of time thinking about things like the Warsaw Pact and the Truman Doctrine and, <laughs> and how to exploit these histor- actual historical events that have been reduced to playing cards um, so that you can get more points in, say, Thailand or Iran. So <laughs> It sounds boring, but it's a really, really fun game, and I recommend everyone play it doesn't sound boring at all to me if you see my bookshelf it's full of a whole load of geopolitical books and also as a kid i absolutely adored uh, the game risk i was never actually any good at it but i used to do war gaming and strategy as a kid and whatever and i wonder why i didn't have a girlfriend until i was quite old and stuff <laughs> so but no no this game seems right right up my street uh so I take it you're good at this game then, Amanda? No, no, not at all. I'm, I'm not good at it at all. So, But that's turned me into somebody who's obsessed with getting good at it. Like, I downloaded a book off the internet. I'm reading it, a strategy book. <laughs> I, like, play at least... I try to play at least one or two games a day of it um, on, on my iPad. Part of it is that we bought the board game at my house and my partner has been kicking my ass at it. <laughs> Because he's played a lot more card games in his life than I have. Uh, that's my my what I'm telling myself right now. It, it's a very difficult game. It, it's very clear that it takes a long time for people to get good at it. And mm-hmm. that alone is kind of exciting to me because I can kind of see 
it's not fun for me to just get good at a game right away. Um, what's the joy in that? What's the challenge, you know? I hear you. I hear you. So that's one out of two. What's the second one? Oh, goodness. I have to come up with two this week, huh? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I thought you said you had to. All right, oh, listen, no, I'll, no, I'll, no. I'll step was, in. That was my big one. My other one was, but we talked about it at the top of the show, is I, I, I bought a oh, new bicycle. Right. <laughs> Good one. I I was slightly struggling for one and uh, a takeaway. I think I've got one now. And it kind of goes back to Christmas. And it's just be careful of the can of worms that you open. <laughs> so I couldn't think what to get anybody for Christmas. My, my mom and dad, who are just like great, wonderful people and stuff, they have everything. I bought them two Alexas last year. I bought them a, um, a tablet but anyway, so there's my parents and there's my kids in Canada and, you know, throwing them more money for clothes doesn't feel like I've particularly thought about anything. And if I go and buy my son or my daughter something or my daughter in England something, invariably it's the wrong pair of jeans, it's the wrong pair of trainers and whatever and stuff. So whatever. So what I did, I bought them a set of Top Trump playing cards. Do you know what Top Trumps are? No, what are they? Top trumps were really popular when I was a kid in the late 70s, early 80s. And you, you have a set of cards and you, there's like 30 in a set and it will be, they're all on different themes. So it could be superheroes, but it could, but also there were like fighter jets. So if we deal with superheroes, so let's say you have a card and it's the Incredible Hulk and there are like four or five attributes. It'll be like intelligence. He gets one for intelligence. Uh, but in his top attribute will be strength, strength, uh, and these attributes can be done either 1 to 10 or 1 to 100. So like strength for the Incredible Hulk would be like 100. Then it might be agility and agility for Hulk might be, I don't know, 5 out of 10. Just whatever, all right? So then, so that's my card. Then you have another card and your card could be Spider-Man. And uh, whoever goes first would say, right... If you got the Incredible Hulk, you're always going to go with the strength. But it could be that you, uh, the person with the Spider-Man card, he goes first and says, right, um, intelligence. And the uh, Spider-Man's intelligence, because he's a pretty good a high school kid, would be like 8 out of 10. So you go 8. The person with the Hulk card only has like 1. Right? So you take the card. It's quite simply that. it's They're all done in sets. It could be superheroes. It could be fighter jets. It could be historical figures. It's whatever the heck it is. And it's a, it's a game that kids play top trumps you're supposed to trump get the highest attribute on that car for that specific thing so i thought i know i'll do i'll go online and customize some top trump cards for the family oh fun now, i come from a west indian family so first problem <laughs> how do you whittle it down to just 30 people because there's obviously my mom, my dad, my kids, blah, blah, blah. So you have the political minefield of who you leave out. What do you mean there isn't a card for me? Right, there's, there's the first thing, right? <laughs> Which I didn't think of at first. So there's that one. Because I had to make some some cuts. I for, I didn't put in my goddaughter on one. Only on Christmas Day I was looking at them. Somebody says, isn't your goddaughter on one? Oh, my God. Like this, right? This was <laughs> oh, no. not the best present to come out with. And then I made catastrophic error because as i kind of said you can number these attributes one to ten and one to a hundred oh no so so what i did was i did okay so um i did because my family's fundamentally jamaicans we're, we're british jamaicans so i did um jamaicanness was a category <laughs> and and that was from one to a hundred. I only scored myself forty-two out of a hundred for Jamaicanness. I'm acutely aware I'm socialised in Britain, but my dad scored uh, ninety-two for argument's sake. So I tried to be really fair with this. So there was Jamaicanness, then there was ragamuffinness, which is another Jamaican term, which basically just means excitability to anger, really volatility, but I called it ragamuffinness. Cooking abilities again, I scored myself very lowly on that, and then that is where I messed up. Because initially I was going to score that one to a hundred, and then I went no 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 make it easy right I score it just that one one to ten. Holy cow! 
what happened Amanda I went onto this website and I obviously cleared out I did the first few scores like for my aunt who's really good at cooking and her husband who's amazing at cooking and I scored him like 92 and then I thought no 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 right because there's so many little kids in the family like I've got little nephews that are like five and six and they're all going to score like ones and twos because they can't cook they're just kids so I said let's do this one to ten it didn't clear out those scores even though I deleted them out when I was doing the cards online the cards came my mom said how comes I've got seven out of a hundred for cooking and your auntie's got 92 holy cow so there's me I was doing this great lovely family gift people are upset that they weren't in it right (laughs) (laughs) and then we're arguing over their scores and whatever so the moral of the story never do anything nice top trumps but don't put in family members because all you'll do is spoil a Christmas day (laughs) but Amanda before we go um, it's been great to do this show with you solo but quickly tell us where people can find you online oh sure I'm I'm at Salon I'm a senior political reporter there and you can follow me on Twitter at my name Amanda.Marcotte and you can follow me on Twitter where quite simply I'm at Royfield and I do precious little with it but uh, if you want to you know uh, follow me to hear the sound of crickets and tumbleweed on social media why don't you go do that and of course we are at Mid-Atlantic Show on the self-same social media platform but I'll tell you what you can do for us uh, because we don't ask for money but what you can do is write us a review on a podcatcher of choice but also go and tell a friend about uh, the wonderful left of centre political view that we provide from me in London Toodlepip do you want to say goodbye Amanda? yes goodbye that was really cool I tell you we don't need the others you know Amanda we can just do this podcast (laughs) without them Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.